Some riders prefer to go solo. And other than the obvious assets of riding in a group, in other words, safety and having someone there if you break down or they break down or need help or assistance of any kind, it's nice to have somebody there. But other than that, aside from the obvious, one of the real advantages of traveling with someone else, be it another rider or even a pillion, is sharing the experience, sharing your day, sharing the adventure that you've had. Because when you travel by yourself, I think, in my mind, a lot of times you forget a lot of what you do. I mean, we have the memorable moments that stick with us for a long time, but a lot of the stuff just goes by. I remember riding uh, one particular time on Vancouver Island, exploring the back roads, going through the mountains, the logging roads, etc., checking out the odd trail, saw a couple of beautiful vistas. The weather was perfect. I mean, it was it was like your picture-perfect trip. It was all warm, and it was warm at night. It was just, it was great. And I remember I pulled in by a lake that I like to swim at, and I'd planned on it, and it was a planned stop for me uh, near the end of the day or in, say, mid-afternoon. And I pull in there, and the, nobody's there. I jump in the water. It's warm. It's got a nice sandy beach there, a little tiny beach that you go in at. It it was perfect. It was beautiful. And I remember floating around on my back there in the water, looking up at that beautiful blue sky and thinking, man, life doesn't get any better than this. And then as I said that to myself, I kind of thought, you know, I'm probably going to forget this. I'm probably going to do this like I do so many things by myself and totally forget all the details about the day. Now, if I had somebody there with me, we would talk about it and we'd maybe reminisce about it down the road, maybe even take some photographs together. But when you're by yourself, there's something different there. It's a different experience. But it's also different when it comes to remembering. And there is a way that you can remember, or at least jog your memory. And that's just making notes, writing it down. I mean, I'm sure you had the experience where you go back and look at something that you wrote maybe years before, months before. It brings back every memory, every smell, every detail. You know, it brings back the vision of what you saw that day. It's an incredibly powerful way to relive an experience. And it's common with overlanders, people who do the long trips, to do just that. They understand the value of writing the notes out and being able to look at it later on and relive the experience. And although I have a couple of journals that I've made sporadic entries in over the years, sometimes going months without making any entry whatsoever, I can go back to any one of them, open up the page and I can read it. I remember every detail. It is the most vivid way to remember something, to go through and read your own handwriting. Today, we will meet someone who documents every day of his life. Doesn't matter how mundane, doesn't matter what happens or what doesn't happen, he documents it and has had for the last 20 or 25 years. And that's Graham Field. And guess what? Graham Field is also an overlander. He's a motorcycle adventurer. He's written a couple of books, which we're going to talk about. And he's a really interesting character. You're going to hear me surprise Graham with my request to get him to do something that I don't think he ever thought anyone would ask him to do. But you're also going to hear one of the most unconventional ways to finance a trip. I've never heard of anyone financing a trip through this method. I would highly recommend it to you, but I'm going to make you wait and hear it from Graham. My name's Jim Martin. You're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. This is Rene Cormier, and you are listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Oh, we got a good show coming up for you. We've got a representative from Continental Tire who's going to talk about cupping, tires, and traction, and a bunch of other tire-related things. You won't get tired of this conversation. Stick around. More coming up. 
We contacted Continental Tires to talk about traction, tire pressure, and a few other things, and we were given Jeff Reed. I'm the sales associate or sales guy for Continental Tire uh, North America. My job is basically to work with uh, our distributor sales reps and customers, uh, educating them about motorcycle tires and uh, just representing Continental Tires out in the field uh, in the motorcycle world. Jeff's been with Continental for about two and a half years and is an extremely knowledgeable fellow. Well, we'll start at the basics. Let's talk about the numbers you see on the side of the tires and what do they mean? So basically what you see when you see the first number, like let's say first number you see is a 150. What that's saying is the section width of that tire is 150 millimeters. Then let's say, well, let's say we're talking about adventure bike sizes. So then you'll see a slash and the next number you see would be a 70. And that 70 is what's called is the height to sidewall ratio or aspect ratio. And what that means is the sidewall for the first section height is 70% of 150 millimeters. Um, then going around the tire, then the next thing you'll see, let's say in the case of a Trail Attack 2, you'll see an R. So that would mean radial. So now we're saying it's 150 millimeters wide, 70% uh, aspect ratio radial tire. Uh, then the next size you'll see, uh, in this case, uh, we're talking adventures be 17. So that means it's a 17-inch rim. And this is kind of an interesting side note. 17-inch car rim and a 17-inch motorcycle rim are not the same 17 inches. Uh, then, which leads us to the next thing we see uh, normally, which is M slash C into a motorcycle tire to differentiate it between an automotive tire. So we've got a 150-millimeter wide tire, meaning that the uh, section height is 70% of 150. Uh, it's a radial on a 17-inch rim intended for motorcycles. Uh, then the next thing you'll usually see is the load speed index, um, you know, be a number like, let's say, 72 or oh, 73 in the case of a sport bike tire generally. And that's a, a number that corresponds to an industry standard chart that tells you what the, uh, the, the load index tire is at its given speed rating. So the ones that people need to be most concerned about is probably the first group, you know, the size, to make sure you get the proper size tire for your motorcycle it is. You know, people being the uh, you know the hot riders by nature, I guess, want to sometimes look at different sizes and it'll kind of put a bigger tire on and such. And and uh, you know, of course, it's you know generally best to use a tire that is uh, recommended for your motorcycle type. You know, of course, it relates a lot to rim width, but um, but that's what those numbers mean. And how do we tell how old a tire is, and why should we care? Well. Uh, there's a, a numbers we call DOT numbers on the side of a tire, a tire sold in North America, uh, and those numbers are, there's a lot of numbers there that indicate the tire model and the plant that it was made from and the manufacturer and such, but the last four are the ones that we would really be concerned about, and those will be uh, four digits. It would be the week that it was made and the year, so it might say, Oh, let's say week 32 of uh, 13. So it'll say, um, you know, 3213. Uh, so that indicates that tire was made in week 32 of 2013. And generally, tire manufacturers will say tires are safe to use if they've been stored properly uh, up to six years old. So anything older than that, you should probably look at um, replacement. You know, this comes into play a lot, and, you know, with uh, gas prices being what they are, you see people getting old bikes out and starting to ride them, and gosh, they might have tires that are 10 or 12 or 15 years or more old, and if they have been stored properly, you know, or even when a tire gets that old, it tends to dry out and get brittle and, of course, can be unsafe. 
So it's definitely important to watch that. I always say to 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 understand what that means, but don't live by it. Meaning that sometimes the sport bike guys will think, "Oh gosh, that tire's two years fresh." But uh, with street tire compounds, they don't continue to cure like a race tire would, so it's not an issue if a tire is two, three years old. By the time a manufacturer builds a tire, puts it in a warehouse, puts it on a boat, ships it to a distributor, distributor puts it in a warehouse, ships it to a dealer, it's not unusual for it to take a year or even two, uh, but it's just it's a good number to be aware of. And while it's being shipped from the manufacturer to the retailer, it's always stored properly, so really that doesn't yep. add to the age of the tire, right? Exactly, right, yeah. Yep, that's exactly right. So now let's start to, to look into traction here. Now, there's, mm-hmm. there's a, I know there's a lot of technicalities in traction, but in layman's mm-hmm. terms, can you lay out the idea of traction and the mating of the road surface and the tire and, and what traction really is? Sure. Well, traction, I guess, is that interface between the, all the inputs and the um, controls in the motorcycle and the road. And so, you know, we, we say a tire uh, serves basically six functions, you know, the number one being steering, uh, you know, two load carrying, three shock absorbing, and, of course, uh, mechanical grip. And what that means is, you know, and this is why I always say that, hey, you have high-quality tires. A lot of times people say, hey, tires brown and black, what's the difference? But no, it is your only interface uh, with the road. And the the actual contact patch on a typical modern motorcycle, you know, meaning the amount of rubber that's actually coming in contact with the road is about the size of a credit card. So so we're not talking about a whole lot of area there. Uh, But what gives the tire its traction? Well, a lot of things, you know, the tire construction, you know, how stiff is the carcass, how flexible is the carcass, the, the compound of the tire, and to some extent, uh, even the, the tread grooves of the tire. So all those things go in to, to give us that adhesion to the road. Uh, and then, of course, the main thing that, that a consumer motorcycle rider can control is the air pressure, because the air pressure is then what allows that tire to interface with the road with the proper contact patch uh, area that it was designed to run. How does air pressure affect it? Uh, well, it's what gives the tire, well, the tire has a shape as it comes out of the mold, running a tire underinflated. Well, now that, that tire, the tread uh, surface or the contact patch area would be not what it was designed to be. So, you know, let's say if it's a grossly underinflated, why the tire might develop kind of a concave uh, condition in the middle. So now the tire is running kind of on the outside of the tread surface that it's not intended to, and then uh, conversely, the uh, same would be true if it was overinflated. Now you're running at um, more of the center of the tire than it was intended to, so you're not getting the maximum contact patches what the tire was designed to do. So how does airing down help us off-road? Um, what it does is it lets the tire be a little more flexible, so it's able to uh, to conform to the road irregularities. Uh, you know, um, Hey, I guess let's look at the extreme example of like a trials tire. You know, of course they run those things pretty, pretty low. You know, maybe eight or as low as uh, three or four psi. And the idea is that that tire then can kind of wrap itself around um, obstacles. You know, the the rocks or whatever boulders or whatever that the trials rider is encountering. So it's that same effect for let's say on our adventure bike to some extent. Now I'm not saying to run them that low, of course, but but we're talking that same uh, effect that it allows the tire to kind of more greatly conform around the imperfections of the road and get grip. 
uh, as opposed to uh, just bouncing and deflecting off of them. It's a little bit of a difficult one, and it's the one that comes up a lot, you know, because particularly with off-road bikes, and we're we're not in the pure off-road market anymore. I'm I'm talking like uh, pure dirt bike tires that you might use on a uh, hair scrambles or you know, off-road type race, uh, you know, a lot of times guys want to run them as low as you can, you know, for the traction, but you, know, you see some deformation of the, the, uh, the contact patch area, uh, which, yeah, that's an issue, uh, but then, of course, you're also getting that ability for the tire to wrap itself in obstacles, but then the main danger is is that you now are opening yourself up to potential pinch flats, you know, meaning that the tire will compress more than it should and, of course, pinch the the tube and give you a flat so it's it's definitely a fine line in the off-road stuff i would say if we're talking adventure bikes um you know typically in a pure off-road situation and a bike like a like a bmw gs or a, i'll give you my example a tiger 800 xc you know generally for off-road you'd be in the 25 psi range and i probably wouldn't go much lower than that because you, you know we're talking big heavy bikes and you would run the chance of pinch flat on a tube wheel or maybe some tire wheel damage on a on a tubeless type uh, rim. Yeah, what I do with mine is um, when I'm running anything that's heavy rock, and I, and I run into this sometimes, especially uh, in British Columbia, uh, some of the trails are logging roads, and they're made of these great big broken rocks. I leave them mm-hmm. pumped right up at that point just for rim protection. Does that make yeah, sense? Yeah, that's good. Yeah, well, absolutely. Absolutely. You're doing it exactly right. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, I was, I kind of laugh. I remember a story years ago. I was out on a ride in Colorado. This was a, you know, dual sport thing. We were all on you know, KTM 450s and such. And uh, one of the guys I was with, you know, I saw him doing tire repairs twice on the same day. You know, I'm like, what in the world? What are you doing? Well, he likes to run his tires down about nine PSI because he likes how that feels and gets the grip. But, yeah, but <laughs> you're, you're not getting much forward motivation when you're stopped along the side of the trail replacing an inner tube, you know. So you've definitely got to watch that. You know, it's uh, one thing to have the grip, but it's another thing to be stopping on the side of the road to replace do you recommend running heavy-duty tubes in a dual sport bike? I think it's a good idea. Uh, you know, you definitely, you know, there's probably a couple schools of thought on that at least. You know, of course, the more weight you add, the more rotating mass, you know, so, of course, it slows the bike down to some extent. And, uh, you know, the heavier the rotating mass of the wheel is, the harder it is to turn. But, on the other hand, if you've got a flat tire, then you've got no <laughs> no forward motivation. So, I think heavy-duty tubes are a good idea, and I think you can get away with running a little lower tire pressure, for sure, with a heavy-duty tube. So, I, I use them when I can, for sure. Now, I heard someone say recently that some manufacturers were saying not to put in uh, any powder with the tube. Is that a recommendation? You know, I'm not sure that we have. Yeah, that's a good question. I'm not sure that we do have an exact recommendation on that. Uh, I'm not sure that it really makes a lot difference. I think sometimes the, you know, particularly on dirt bikes, you get some moisture in there and the powder kind of turns to a paste and mess anyway. So I'm not sure that it really does much anything. But um, I hadn't heard anything official, no, but... uh, I'm, I'm, I, it's something I've always done myself, but anymore I'm starting to think uh, I'm not sure. I, I always, whenever I'm changing a tire or fitting a new tube, of course you want to make sure the inside of the tire and the tube are completely clean because you don't want any, you know, let's say a little piece of gravel or whatever to get in there between the two and abrade them and eventually cause a puncture. So I think it's probably more important to make sure the two are perfectly clean um, when they go together. How do you feel about running slime? I'm not a big fan of it. I think there's things like that that if if that's what it takes to get you home, I think it's probably a good idea. 
Yeah, I tend to agree. What I do is I carry a, a bottle of it with me for those times that I don't want to do the repair, be it on the side of a highway or whatever, and I'll squirt it in and pump it up, and away you go. Yep. But I, I think it's, it makes such a mess when you go to, to do a repair. That's right. just it's impossible to repair. Agree. Uh, let's talk about mm-hmm. tire temperature and start off with a cold tire. Well, uh, in race tires, this is something that, that really comes up, and this is something that I see a lot of times, particularly with the young sport bike guys. You know, they'll buy used race tire takeoffs and, you know, think they've really got something hot for the street. But, but generally what happens is race tires are meant to be heavily loaded, you know, at high speeds for extended periods of time. So they are a lot of times, um, let's say, a a harder compound, I hate to say harder compound because it's probably not really, but it takes more temperature to get them to that soft point uh, because they are made to hold up under high loads and high heat conditions, whereas street tires uh, are generally made to uh, have the, the grip and adhesion at much lower temperatures because, you know, one, you're not going to put your bike on uh, tire warmers while it's sitting at work, you know, so you can get out and ride at lunchtime. Uh, but it does take some heat to get the tire to, to kind of get to that uh, I hate to say molten state or semi-molten state, but uh, in the extreme case of a race tire, yeah, that is kind of what's going on. The tire gets to a, you know, a semi-molten state, and that's where a lot of the grip comes in, and, and there is some some of that involved with street tires to a much lesser extent. But, yeah, definitely heat um, has a lot to do with it. I've often thought the um, the ratios that we use for determining what the tire is for, the 70-30, you know, 50-50 mm-hmm. thing, it's often struck me that it's sort of misleading in a way. I think mm-hmm. it would be more descriptive to say that instead of a 70-30 tire, say that, well, mm-hmm. it'd get a 7 out of 10 on the street and a 3 out of 10 off-road. Um, mm-hmm. Often I'll hear people say, well, I only go on dirt, you know, 10% of the time, so a 70-30 tire is perfect for me. Well, that may mm-hmm. be true, but it may not be true as well, because it depends and what you want to do in those times that you're on the dirt. Yeah. No, I think you're right. That's uh, It is kind of, I guess that's just kind of where everybody's kind of gone to, but you're right. I think that might be more descriptive. It, um, and this is funny because people will say, you know, like, oh, okay, well, oh, that's a 50-50 tire. I was looking for something more 60-40. Like, oh, come on, you know, I mean, we're <laughs> we're splitting hairs there. There is no hard and fast, you know. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. And you just kind of have to I decide what you're, you know, well, give an example. I use TKC 80s uh, 100% of the time on my Tiger, but do I do half dirt and half street? No, I wish I would. <laughs> I like to have the TKC 80 traction when I go off the road. Um, I guess it's kind of you look at a tire and what are you trying to get out of it and what's generally your type of riding. And, and, uh, and hey, part of it's aesthetics, too. People like how a certain tire looks on a bike, and, hey, that's fine, too. So. I've been speaking with Jeff Reed from Continental Tire. Coming up next, we've got Graham Field, motorcyclist, adventurer, author, and a guy who financed at least one of his trips in a completely unconventional and possibly unrepeatable way. Stick around. Hello. And here's the guy I've been telling you about all the way from the UK. Uh, my name's Graham Field. Um, I write uh, motorcycle overland books, and I'm from Essex in England. Graham Field is an adventure motorcyclist, overlander, and he's an author of two books of his adventures. One's In Search of Greener Grass, and the other one is Eureka with a U, and he'll explain that, of course, later on. When you visit Graham's website, you'll see that he um, started traveling at a young age, and he says it all started with a round-the-world trip with a girlfriend, which would have been back in 1990, and that was a year-long trip, um, which... 
I don't know if it changed my life, but it certainly made me realize that travel was what I enjoyed most. And I spent a lot of time going to the States. I got friends out there, so I used to travel around the States a bit. And then probably the big changing one was six months on my own backpacking around India. Um, not that you're ever really on your own, but I went on my own and I came back on my own. So uh, that was when I realized that I can travel solo and independently on quite a low budget. And ultimately, it's something I really enjoy. Um, so then the backpacking continued around South America and uh, various other things. Now, I've always, always ridden motorbikes. Since before I was even old enough to have a license, I've ridden motorbikes. So two of the constants in my life are travel and motorbikes. But it took me about 25 years to figure out I could put the two together. Um, and when that happened, uh, I really never looked back. Everything changed for the better. So there were several uh, motorcycle trips around the States, um, and uh, which, because I sort of spent half my life out there, um, I'd sort of based in Colorado, we'd go out to California, and then a big one was up to Alaska from Colorado, which ended up being an 11,000 mile trip on a totally impractical bike. Um, but then when I really got my act together was there's a TV game show in the UK, and it's also in other countries, certainly in the States, I don't know if you have it in Canada, but it's called Deal or No Deal. And um, are you familiar with that at all? You know, the problem is, Graham, um, you're actually talking to one of the few people who I, I haven't seen television for about 25 years. Uh, I made a conscious uh, decision to get rid of it when we had kids and, and we've never had it. And I can't seem to even find time to fit it in. So I don't have a clue. I'm, I'm really, I mean, I, a lot of people raise their eyebrows and look at me like I live under a rock. No, I don't I'm... have a clue. <laughs> No, well, good for you for not having a telly. Since I did that thing, which was about five or six years ago, I haven't had one either. Um, but what happened was, the story was, I was in between houses, I sold my house, hadn't bought one, living with a friend, which meant didn't have an awful lot to do, all my possessions were in storage, so I got addicted to this thing we call TV. I hadn't had one prior to that, and I haven't had one since that. Um, so anyway, there's this show called Deal or No Deal. And if I try and explain it, I overcomplicate it. But the fact is, there's a bunch of boxes, all have different amounts of money in it. There is one question in this game show. It's not like who wants to be a millionaire. It's not difficult. You just get offered various amounts of money to which you reply deal or no deal, depending on whether you're going to accept that money. Anyway, I won £5,000, about $7,500 on that show. And in my application form to be on that show, one of the questions they'd asked was, what would you do if you won a significant amount of money? And I rather flippantly wrote, I would do a motorcycle trip, which would make Charlie and Ewan's long way around look like a trip to the grocery store. <laughs> so unfortunately, they mentioned that in the actual <laughs> show and it wasn't edited out. So I was sort of had to put my money where my mouth was. Um, and they, they asked me on the show, what would you need for that kind of trip? And I clearly didn't have a clue what I was talking about. Um, so I spent that winter researching a bit. I bought myself a 1996 KLR 650 off of eBay, um, which was about 700 pounds, I don't know, about 11,000, about 1,100 US dollars. Now, KLR 650s, as you know, on, on in North America are like a religion. They're huge. But they're really rare beasts this side of the Atlantic. We've got a lot of other Japanese bikes which are comparable to that, like the Yamaha make the um, the XT and uh, Suzuki make the DR. And so the, the Kawasaki never really bought the KLR over here in, in great bulk, and they're not very popular. 
Um, however, I did find out what a spectacular bike it is. So on a very inexpensive bike, with a bunch of products that I bought off of eBay, um, my whole bike stood me at about £2,000, about 3000 US, and I set off to ride to Mongolia. And that was how it all came to be. India, you mentioned, was a life changer for you. And I guess in a, in a basic sense, that's changed your idea of travel. But this winnings in, on deal or no deal was the thing that really changed your life then. It was because um, obviously I'd watched The Long Way Round. I had sort of thought about that style of travel. When I travel, I, the, the part of the UK that I live in is a very crowded part. If you look at world population maps, you look at places like Manhattan Island, Hong Kong, um, and they're all coloured in red to show a very dense population. Well, so is the southeast of England. We've got real high density population. And so what I love is to get out and get away from it all. So Mongolia seemed like the place to go. It's one of the least populated countries on the planet. And um, so with three visas, one for Russia, one for Kazakhstan and one for Mongolia, and no sense of proportion at all. And the £5,000 that I'd won off of the game show, that was my budget. That's what I did. And slowly through, well, initially what I did, in fact, was go to Sweden to a rock festival because it was far less daunting to leave my house thinking I'm just going to a rock festival in Sweden than it was to think, actually, I'm riding all the way to Mongolia. <laughs> so it started with a rock festival. Um, and then from there, Poland into Ukraine, which, you know, by the time you've got into Ukraine, you've got the Cyrillic alphabet. So things are getting pretty strange. You can't read the words anymore. Um, and then a ferry um, actually down to the Crimea, in fact, um, which is, of course, making all the headlines at the moment, across into Russia and to Russia the first time and then Kazakhstan. Uh, out the top of Kazakhstan, you come into Russia a second time and then down into Mongolia. And I made it. I made it to Mongolia. My little 700 quid bike, which I used to do my grocery shop on, I've just ridden it to where camels are roving to the center of Mongolia, to Ulaanbaatar. It was pretty spectacular moment for me because it was an unthinkable distance before I left home and having made it there I realized it was a little bit short-sighted it being a landlocked country on the biggest landmass on the planet you've got to go somewhere from there um, it's not known for its ports so I, my bike was using a lot of oil it was getting pretty knackered I thought okay well I'm going to keep heading east so I went into Russia a third time uh, across the Trans-Siberian Highway to Vladivostok hoping perhaps I could ship it back from Vladivostok. Um, however, because it was such a cheap bike, it was going to cost me four times what the bike had cost me to ship it back to the UK. And one of the stipulations of entry into Russia is that you leave with the vehicle that you came in with. So I couldn't even give the thing away. And it deserved better than just to be pushed off the edge of the dock. And so my little bike was becoming a little bit of a ball and chain. I'm rapidly running out of countries I can go to. From Vladivostok, you've got Japan. Well, I didn't have a car now. I couldn't do that. North Korea and China, not really famous for tourism. And equally, you need a lot of paperwork if you did want to get into China. So the only country that was left to me as an option was South Korea. Um, I was only going to go as far as Mongolia. That seemed good enough. Now, South Korea, all I knew about Korea was what I'd seen on MASH. I knew nothing else about it. So I got a ferry down to Korea. And anyway, a cut long story short, as a personal favor, some people who have these roll on, roll off ferries, which they ship the Kia and the Hyundai cars on, let me put my little bike on their ferry. And 40 days later, it ended up back in Southampton in the UK. And I got my hands back on it again. So this, um, the trip to Mongolia, you came back home. And then what happened? What happened? So did that trip, I was 
pretty impressed with myself for doing that. And uh, and as particularly on such a small budget. I mean, it really was an endurance test. Some days you're out in the middle of nowhere. There is nowhere to spend your money on. If you want to, you're camping in the middle of the steppe. There's nothing around. The only food you've got to eat is what you bought with you in your panniers. Other days you're just knackered. You want a nice hotel. You want a bit of luxury. You want to charge your batteries physically and mentally. And um, so, but that's what it worked out at. About 50 pounds a day, about seven and a half thousand dollars. It was a hundred day trip. So about, um, worked out about 50 pounds a day. So um, I thought, well, uh, I might write a book about it. So um, I've always written. I mean, I've kept a diary constantly for 25 years. I mean, every single day of my life, it's the one discipline in my life is that I've kept a diary. That's incredible. Um, back in my early 20s. Yeah. No, that's amazing. There's, there's so few people who do that, but it's an incredible thing to do. I've done it off and on um, for the past uh, 30 years of my life. Very uh, erratic with my entries. But when I go back to them, and I was just telling somebody this the other day that I was interviewing, when I go back to those entries, it takes me to that day, I can picture the day, I can feel the heat or the cold, I can see exactly what it looked like, I can smell things, it's amazing. It is, it is, I treasure them, I mean, I keep them all in fireproof boxes, if I were to ever lose them, it would be like a lobotomy, because all my memories are in there. Um, so, yeah, 25 years of diaries, and it is, like I said, a discipline every single day. And like anything, I think if you do something regularly, you get better at it. And the, apart from anything else, I, well, back in my 20s, I probably pied a bit too hard. Didn't can't always remember exactly what I'd done. And I'd be with friends and they'd be reminiscing about some event we went to, some festival or some bike show. And I had no recollection of it at all. Really, was I even there? Yeah, don't you remember this happened? So what is the point in having me all this, having these fun times if you don't recall them? That's probably what started me doing a diary. And what happens, I think, is um, writing it down, you relive that experience a second time. Even if you don't go back to those diaries to reread them, you've already kind of uh, embedded the memory in a little more because you've relived it as you've written it down. So... I'm terrible at remembering faces. I'm terrible at remembering names. But I have a really good memory of dates. When somebody asks me, oh, you know, have you been to Penang in Malaysia? Yeah, now that would have been about April of 91. I can, if not give you the, the actual day, I can give you the month and the year because I can associate it in a chronological order with what else I've done because it's all written down. Anyway, point is, always kept a diary. And... Um, so the the book I wrote in diary format um, because I think journeys are taken a day at a time. I don't start my books with the big drama, the big accident or love scene or whatever. It starts with you leaving the house. And a lot of people who have read it have said, you know, they feel like they're on the ride with me because they experience the highs and lows as they happen, as you would on a journey. Um, and also, the, it was much easier to write that way because I wasn't sitting down to think, God, I've got to write a book. I was sitting down and writing, I've got to document the day. And if you chunk something like that, um, it was a 100-day trip, uh, after you've done that 100 times, there's, a, well, there was a 150,000 word, word document. Um, and it was, it was relatively easy to write, I think. Um, Anyway, um, people seem to like it, and uh, it did all right. And um, so I thought I'll do it again. I'll do another trip and write another book. So kind of what happened. This is your first trip to Mongolia, but then you did more after this. That's right. So what I decided I'd do, um, I like heading east, uh, particularly from here in the UK. It's a very gradual transition. 
um, because as you sort of leave Western Europe and go into Eastern Europe, um, slowly things change where you start seeing horses and carts being used on the road. Um, the, the dress changes, it becomes more traditional. And as I said earlier, you go even further east, you reach the Cyrillic alphabet and then you can't read anymore. As you continue going east from, say, Bulgaria to Turkey, then you get into Islamic states. So the, tradition, the uh, transition is slow and you're not suddenly wide-eyed in a completely foreign culture. Um, so I thought I'd head east again. My intention was to go to Iran, but uh, it was this time last year, last spring, spring of 2013, and they were having their elections and I couldn't get a visa for various reasons. But I thought, okay, well, I'll go through what's collectively known as the stands and then come back through Russia and actually do a round trip this time. So yeah, same little bike, headed off um, through Eastern Europe, Turkey, and I decided I'd swing down into Iraq just to see what it was like. Uh, it's very easy to get a, border, uh, a visa for Iraq. You just get one on the border. And um, so I went down into Iraq, um, which was really hot because it was because uh, it was summer <laughs> and uh, and spent a little time there, which was really quite incredible because we a lot of the places or I like to go to places which have sort of a one word association. You know, you mentioned Kazakhstan. A lot of people come back with Borat. You say Iraq, people think Gulf War. But there's significantly more to these countries than the sensationalized news reports or the ridiculously irresponsible movies or whatever. So I met uh, people who were so incredibly generous and hospitable and just to the point where I couldn't even spend my money. Um, if I'd go into a restaurant and they chat to me and I'd order some breakfast, it's like, no, it's our pleasure. It's for you. It's a gift from us. Enjoy our country. I'd go into a shop to buy some water. And again, it was gifted to me. It was really humbling to the point where when somebody did charge me for something I'd be well have I pissed you off no one else does you know so um it was uh it, it, it was a wonderfully friendly country very misunderstood country um so then from there went up north through Turkey back into Turkey up into Georgia and Azerbaijan and anyway, to cut a long story short, uh, at the Caspian Sea, where I was supposed to get a ferry across to enter Turkmenistan and continue my trip in the stands, it all kind of went a bit pear-shaped. And um, that's kind of the point of the second book. I, it was a huge decision, but I decided to do a U-turn. And at that point, everything fell into place. It's as if the planets aligned and the trip just took on a whole new momentum. And it was really meant to be. And it was a very tough decision to actually give up on the plan but in actual fact, it was totally the best thing to do because, um, yeah, it all came right. And it ended up, again, being a 15,000-mile trip. And, again, it was a 100-day trip. It just wasn't what I'd uh, expected it to be. And then you ended up back at home? Yeah, so I ended up back at home. In actual fact, it was a year and two days ago I got back to my house. Um, I had it rented out, rented out. I always rent it out when I go away because then I don't have to worry about the mortgage and what have you. Someone else deals with that. Um, and the tenant uh, moved out on the 5th of August last year, and that's when I moved back in. So I thought, am I going to be able to even write a book about this? The the trip went wrong. It wasn't what it was supposed to do uh, be. But I did, and it actually worked out quite well because there's, there's, there's a lot of I'm sure on your side of the Atlantic as well, there's a lot of magazines, there's a lot of TV, there's a lot of stuff all based around adventure, whether it's the, the bikes with adventure on their name or the magazines or the TV programs. Adventure is constantly being bombarded, we're bombarded by it. And um, 
it's not that bloody easy. It's it's difficult, you know, it doesn't just happen. And so I think I was honest enough to say that sometimes plans go wrong and it's okay. Some challenges are meant to be faced and I think it's okay to turn your backs on others because ultimately, unless you're fully sponsored and you or, or whatever, ultimately you're doing it for you. It's kind of a selfish thing. And if you're not having a good time, it's all right to change those plans and, and turn it around so that you are having a good time, which is what I did. Like I say, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And so the second book was called Eureka, spelled with a U, because when I did the U-turn, I found the contentment, everything fell into place. So, yeah, and that was the second book. And uh, with uh, without ruining the plot. <laughs> People wonder when they hear about someone like yourself going and traveling around the world on this low budget, on a motorcycle and staying in hotels finance everyone wonders finance and everyone says how on earth can they finance it that's a really big thing can you talk about how you finance your trips yeah um i i wonder that too i mean what i do are three month trips three and a half month trips about 100 days that for me is the perfect amount of time after three and a half months I think you perhaps get start getting a little bit complacent. Beautiful architecture, stunning mountains, deserts, palm trees. They start to lose their thrill a little bit, I think, after three and a half months. And it's perhaps time to go back home and go back to a working life where um, uh, you appreciate what you've seen all the more. Um, so I wonder, too, when these people go off for three, four year round the world trips, how the hell they finance it. Well, the first one was financed by the winnings of a game show. Obviously, that's not an option to, for everybody. But still, like I say, and I'll just stick with pounds now, it was a £5,000 budget. So it's not an unthinkable amount to save. And the second trip was exactly the same, 100 days with a five grand budget. I think, you know, especially you know, people around here love to drive around in their big four by four cars, have their bloody great TVs on their walls and say how lucky I am. Well, I drive around in a shitty little van and I don't even have a TV. So it's all about priorities. I prioritise my life. I shop out the bargain basement reduced section of the supermarket because I get a lot more pleasure. That money will go a lot further on the road than it does buying into these material items that really only end up owning you anyway. And if they really give you that much pleasure, then how come you have to upgrade them to the next one when it comes out? So it can't really be a satisfying lifestyle. So to get back to your point, five grand is not an unthinkable amount of money to save if you choose to prioritise your income to saving for a trip as opposed to buying into the latest products, iPhones, whatever. Um, so it's not a huge budget, but also, as I said earlier, it's not a huge endurance test for me because sometimes you just need a hotel. I'm not going to be a martyr and camp in wet clothes in pissing rain night after night. I'm not going to uh, deny myself some luxuries when I just need them. I mean, I'm 48 now and I'm not as hardcore as I used to be. Sometimes you just need some comfort, you know. <laughs> Graham, why do you travel? Why do I travel? Well, there's a couple of reasons, really. Firstly, um, it, I'm really, really happy when I'm traveling. I love the independence of it. I love the simplicity of it. I like that I have, I'm have i self-contained. I have everything I need in my panniers and I can stop when I want to. Oh, if we're talking about bike travel, this is. I can stop when I want to. I can put up my tent. I can feed myself and I can stay there for a few days until my water supplies run out. That for me is when I'm happiest, when I'm not surrounded by um just the daily things in our in our Western lifestyles that, that trap us and stop us being what 
really is is free so that aspect of it i really like but as i travel more as i get older and more informed as, as i probably become more cynical as well what i like the aspect i get from it more and more is seeing how things really are as opposed to how we're told they are i become realized just how controlling the media is how they have an agenda and how misinformed they deliberately make us and how they can really spark off this religious hatred with it be it with islamic fundamentalists or whatever and all the only knowledge we have of these people quite often is what we're told on the TV and the radio. And there is nothing like a first-hand experience to meet these people of these countries to see what they're really like. And of course, they're just like us. They have pictures of their kids on their phones. They just want to keep their kids safe, educated, fed and sheltered. You know, we all across the planet basically have the same needs to nurture people. And outside of that there will always be the extreme people but they are the minority you know the people who make headlines they're the people who sell newspapers and, and advertising to to news companies that's the sensationism but that is also the minority and and why i like to travel is to constantly remind myself that people are generally good people you know Graham, in some of the uh, in one of the descriptions for your book it um talked about you being very honest, uh, almost offensive to some people. Do you uh, think of yourself as um, as shocking, brash, or brutally honest? What's your style there? Um, I don't think I deliberately go out to be provocative. Um, and I think when people, st and I think when you read the book, it, it, as I said, it's a diary format. You don't lie in your diary. So if somebody pisses me off, I say it. Um, equally, when something is just stunning and I'm in awe of it, or someone's gone above and beyond any level of um, generosity to look after me, I mention that too. Um, it's all about the highs and lows of travel. So, I mean, I think the person I make fun of most in my books is myself, because I really go into some stupid situations. And for all my experience, I don't seem to learn that much from it and uh, still get myself into predicaments. And I think if you are okay with making fun of yourself, that gives you the right to make fun of other people. So yes, I do make fun of other people and I don't go out to be deliberately offensive or provocative, um, but yeah, I'll have a poke at someone if they deserve it, yeah. Instantly, you make the book sound even better. <laughs> Instantly. <laughs> that adds an edge that makes any book sound like something you need to pick up. So clearly this is the case with your two books. <laughs> Can we go back to India for a moment? Um, because I'm intrigued by the fact that India was a time of a change for you where you discovered that you could travel on your own. Can you talk a little bit more about that and, and how that discovery came about? Yeah, it was... Um, I, I'd, I'd had a, a relationship had come to an end. I was at a bit of a loose end. So, um, as so many Western people do, I decided I'd go to India and find myself or lose myself or whatever. Um, so, yeah, I just went out with a backpack. Um, I had 2,000 US dollars. This was in 96 and I had a six-month visa. 
And uh, initially I went to Goa, which is a very modern place. And Indians, um, if you ever, you know, whenever I, I get a call centre and they're, they're in India, I love to ask them whereabouts they are because I know their country a little bit. And if they say, oh, well, where in India have you been? And I say, oh, Goa. And they say, well, it's not really India, is it, sir? Um, and it, it's not. It's a gentle uh, transition into the Indian subcontinent because it is quite gentle and the foods are Western and the English is language, uh, the, Eng the language is English. Um, however, after that I then went off into a bit more of the country and in 96 there the internet really wasn't out there I mean they have come such a long way since then there is a huge middle class in India now and they are there's a lot of wealthy people and more importantly there's a lot of very informed people the information they had of the West back then was two TV programs Baywatch and WWF wrestling and that somewhere they made their their um, images of the West based around those two programs so it wasn't a entirely accurate idea that they had um, so it was it was incredible that back then and, and it has changed a lot people would still touch your skin because they hadn't seen white skin they would be and I got kind of long hair as well so I just didn't fit into what was what they what they saw. I mean, there were backpacker areas where you were more accepted, but it's not that difficult to stray off the beaten track. And Indians are lovely people. They are so interested, intrigued in in you, and and a lot of them do speak English. So you can have more than just point and mind conversations. And it can be really hard work. It's a very populated place. It can be very in your face at times. And quite often, I think a trip to India is appreciated on retrospect when you're back in the in the tranquility of your own country. Um, and it, it can definitely be hard. And you see people out there, Westerners out there, who have just been there too long. They're not getting anything out of it. They're just getting wound up by everything that's going on. Um, it, it's a spectacular, magical, chaotic country that we will never fully understand. Um, but it's it, it's so diverse. It's a very big place from mountains to palms and plains. Um, and uh, and I still, I mean, I, I think the last time I was there was about two years ago. And there's, there's still a magic there. I don't think that will ever disappear. So, yeah, I, I love India. You found um, you found a change in yourself there when you went the first time. Is that just because you managed to do it? You said, okay, wow, I can do this? I think so. I mean, I drove a truck in the UK for 17 years, so I'm kind of used to my own company, um, which probably put me in good stead for when I um, got to India and was traveling alone. And like I say, you're never truly alone. But I found that I was I was capable of making decisions, booking trains, catching buses, finding places to stay. You don't really camp in India. It's so densely populated and the, and it's also very cheap. So you can get guest houses for a very minimal amount. And so in my backpack, I wasn't carrying camping or cooking equipment. It was just 15 cassette tapes and uh, and the clothes I needed. So, um, it, yeah, I think I proved myself that I, w I was capable of doing it. I think some of the, I don't know how accurate this is, but probably some of the more challenging countries to travel around will be um, China and India and I had just done India so I thought I think I can I think I'm okay I think I can carry on doing this you know I've just I've met the challenges of and ultimately I've enjoyed it so uh, yeah it was life well, certainly, uh, life affirming you know I knew that it was something I could do. 
nowadays a lot of people are looking to go on their their whatever adventure but in this case particularly motorcycle adventure and um, before they go they're trying to find sponsors they're talking about filming they're talking about writing a blog possibly uh, doing a book it's very much in a lot of people's minds when they're planning trips for themselves how do you feel about sponsored versus personal trips uh, for me, I wouldn't do it. Um, the reason why, I, in the first book, I mentioned a couple of Austrians who I met who were fully sponsored, from bikes to laptops to their phones and their phone calls. They had a camera with a lens, which cost more than my entire trip costs. Now, that looks great on the face of it. These guys are basically getting paid to do a trip from Austria down to China. Spectacular. What could be wrong? Well, what was wrong was they had huge obligations to their sponsors to achieve this. They also, having set off together, realized that they actually didn't like each other that much, but were obliged to stay together because that was the package that they sold to the sponsors. They also had to do all these places. There was no room for uh, changing their plans. They had to do what they said they were going to do. And ultimately, they were conditioned to blog and email and what have you. So when we, there was one particular place in Kazakhstan um, where we were in this fabulous little town for a night. We were offered to go off for a tour with this local in his car, go to a nightclub, go to a restaurant. But they sat in, under the fluorescent lights in a gaudy internet cafe fulfilling their obligations and writing their blogs so to the sponsors because that's what they had to do they were missing the trip because they were doing what they had to do to get on the trip in the first place sponsorship is a ball and chain it's be aware when you're given all this stuff that it isn't free it comes with a price and surely the point of getting off on your bike and riding is to escape all the restrictions and all the confines that we have when we're at home living our normal lives and so I'm I'm not really that's why my trips are affordable prices and, and of the length they are because I can afford that and I'm not obligated to anybody to do to deliver anything from those trips so yeah sponsorship I'm, I'm not a huge fan and it makes you wonder if really the sponsorship uh, it just ends up getting you some products that you probably don't need. I'm often taken by people like yourself. You take a 1996 KLR 650 that you bought off eBay and you ride it, you know, forever. And uh, you're not worried about having the, the latest, greatest, obviously, or you'd be riding the, the latest motorcycle. And I think sometimes the sponsorship gets people caught up in that, thinking that they need all this fantastic gear. Do you find yourself buying the latest, greatest gear to go on your trips, or do you take what you have? No, I mean, of course, there's huge industries built around this bubble of adventure bike riding who are Touratech and various people who make all these products, um, which I'm sure are wonderful products. Uh, if I bought those products, I couldn't afford to go away. So it's not really an option for me. There are, because I do a lot of the bike shows where I have stands and sell my books, and I have become more aware of the various products that are available. I have bought in to better quality camping equipment. I've got myself a really good tent, um, which will stand up to the strongest of thunderstorms. I've got myself a, a lovely blow-up mattress, which takes up hardly any room and makes for a comfy night's sleep. And I've got a good sleeping bag. Because I think when you do camp, when you are sleeping, it's important that you get good sleep because if you don't, you're going to be fatigued on the road next day. At best, you're not going to be that aware of the scenery you're passing. At worst, you're going to be more likely to have an accident because of your fatigue and lack of rest. So I do buy into good quality camping equipment. The rest of it, I really don't think is that important. The jacket I took last year to Turkey and Iran was, or Iraq, was, uh, was a three pound jacket that I bought off of eBay. 
yeah, it bloody leaked, but the money that I saved instead of buying into a thousand dollar climb jacket, I could get a hotel when I was soaking wet. And it didn't own me. If I did lose it, if it was strapped on the back of the bike and someone pinched it, I have only lost a three pound jacket. I haven't lost a, a huge expensive thing. And also when you go to these poorer countries, we're rich West, Westerners, whether we like it or not. And if you've got a bike that's covered in bling, if you're walking around in squeaking boots and chainmail climb gear, then you can hardly portray the, the, the image that you want of, of trying to blend in. If you're trying to haggle for the price of the room and you've got a 15 grand GS parked outside, it really is a bit of a contradiction. And also having a cheaper and smaller bike, I think, um, I've got a bunch of homemade parts. I'm not an engineer by any any means. I mean, I've got a toilet brush holder across the front, which I keep my tools in. I've got a chip pan fryer uh, cover, which I've got over my headlight to protect it from rocks and things like that. So in these poorer countries, they have ingenuity. They don't have internet and part numbers, but they can make things work. So I think, again, it's an appreciation from locals is that you've used a bit of ingenuity that you've been able to... Um, to it's something you can relate to it's a conversation piece so i do understand that if you're not in a position because of your um because of, of family and, and career um and what have you, you can't necessarily go off for three months and so if you can only take a two-week vacation then perhaps you do enjoy making your bike the best it can be by buying into the accessories because you simply can't afford the time to to go off and do that stuff. For me, it's about doing it on minimalistic means and and, and functional. It doesn't have to be top of the range stuff. Do you do any filming with a GoPro or any uh, helmet or bike mounted camera while you're out? I don't. Um, I've seen. I've both ridden with people who have had the GoPros and stuff, and they've sent me the footage. And even the footage that I'm in. I find kind of boring. I mean, it's just riding along a road and and I don't, uh, it's, it's just more batteries to charge. If I've got any talent at all, it's in written word. And that's how I recalled my trips. And so uh, I'm not knocking it. That's fine if you like it. But I don't think even if I was to record it, I'd have the time or the skill when I'm back home to sit in front of the computer screen and edit it to a size that was interesting. So no, I leave the GoPros to other people. I, I, I enjoy my photography and enjoy my written word. And that's how I record my trips. When you're doing your diary entries, do you do those daily? Is it, is it something you do before you go to bed or when you get up in the morning? Um, used to be before I went to bed, but then I worked nights for seven years and I'd get home knackered. So it became a morning thing. And it stayed a morning thing. I also think that um, over the night, you process the day that was subconsciously. And so it's quite easy to write it in the morning. So, uh, yeah, so the, the diary writing is, for me, is a first thing in the morning. When you have a boring day where nothing happens, what do you write in your diary? Ah, that's the real challenge, you see. And I think that's probably what helps me. There's oh, every, every day has an entry, uh, a heading. Uh, I should say. And uh, there was one miserable February day when it barely gets light and it was just grey and damp. And the only thing I had to do that day was to go down to the grocery store and uh, and pick up my weekly shopping. And what do you write about a day like that? It's just a bloody miserable day. And the heading was, they've changed the aisle for the hummus. <laughs> so... 
<laughs> oh, that's fantastic. I can't believe it. You know, the, the great thing about it, you know, in the future when somebody goes, I mean, after your long turn to dust, somebody can go back and they can find that and say, this is when they changed the aisle for the hummus. That is fantastic. <laughs> Grim, I would love to do something with you right now, and it's going to be up to you whether you want to or not. I would love to have you go grab one of those old diaries, flip to a random page, and read us a, an entry. Okay then. Uh, let me go. Don't, let me go don't choose, open a fireproof box. Don't choose one because you know it's good. Random. Just do a random one. We'll do it, but I reserve the right to censor it. Okay. <laughs> let me give me give me a minute okay, to go, yeah, go and ahead. Uh, open a fireproof box and dig the dust out. Can we hear the sounds of you opening that fireproof box? Can you put the microphone near it? Oh, it's not going to creak, but I'll bring it in so you can hear it. Okay. Okay, sound of me putting heavy fireproof box on table. Right, finding key for heavy fireproof box. No, sound of me putting on glasses so I can see key. Uh, right, I'm, I don't know what key it is and I've got a bunch of them here so you're going to bear with me. I've chosen the box which has the diaries from 97 to 04. Um, because if we go back too early, that's just kind of irrelevant. Ooh, there's all sorts of stuff in here. Right, here's 99, 2002. You want to pick a year between those years I've told you? 99. 99, okay, it's on the top here. Right, okay. You pick a day and a date, and I'll see if it's any well, interest whatsoever. Let's, let's go to August 7th, 1999. Okay, that's exactly, exactly uh, August the 7th. Oh! Vic's wedding. <laughs> You've got a good day. Uh, okay, well, there's mundane in here. Um, so Vic was actually my ex-girlfriend, who I don't have anymore, who did the first trip when we did the round-the-world trip. Um, so that was the day she got married. Um, so, God, I mean, nothing spectacular because it's just wedding stuff. But um, I do remember something that happens, and I'll try and find that entry down here. Um, <laughs> yeah, see? <laughs> <laughs> I got a sense of some of this stuff because <laughs> it was a white wedding. There was a lot of partying. So, right, food was ready. Wasn't exactly hungry. Uh, the soup was great. So were the meats. Um, but I was full, kind of. Um, the speakers were dull, except from uh, Oz's, which was uh, which was touching. And then I caught the bouquet. It came flying right at me. I couldn't avoid it. After that, I uh, just decided to drink. And uh, and uh, but I didn't eat. Lady asked me if I wanted to put my flowers in. If you want, if uh, you could put my flowers in water, um, and then went back to the van. So yeah, I mean the thing is, I obviously don't write my um, I don't write my books directly like that. The my the diary jogs my mind. So. It's funny as you're reading and you read that the meat was served and it was good. <laughs> I'm thinking that's just, <laughs> just unbelievably detailed, but I'm sure it jogs your memory. I mean, I think that's that's just amazing. So now if we can do the same thing, but let's go to a time when you're on the road traveling with your motorcycle. As a matter of fact, since the book is based on your diary, why don't you read a passage directly from the book? Okay. Oh, God, I didn't know I was going to be doing a reading. Hang on. Um, so let me find a day. Luckily, I have a book right here. Uh, okay, so this is um, day 63 of the trip, to, uh, 20 kilometers away from a place called Tuson Sinjo, I couldn't read it, uh, in Mongolia. Um, 
When the red dawn arrives, both bike and tent are still standing. Once again, horses Miranda through the camping area, grazing uh, for their breakfast feed. The dramatic sunrise and passing wildlife make me grab a camera before I grab my tools. I have the morning to myself and I want to keep it that way. I move my bike away from the tent, spread out my poncho and quietly and methodically start to take off what I need to get to the wiring. I should say at this point, the bike had broken down. I'd had an uh, electrical fault the night before. So anyway, uh, strange I should favour the middle of a barren step over the town to work on my bike, but I've never worked well with someone else looking over my shoulder. I replace the blown fuse. I replaced the fuse I blew last night and have power again. I get down to the starter button connections. I bypass them and the bike fires up. I may not know my bike inside out, but I know me. And I know when I work at my best, refreshed and alone, electrical faults require thought before they require tools. However, my celebration is premature. So, uh, yeah, it was an electrical fault I had in the middle of the Kazakhstan, in the Mongolian steppe, and I uh, had to try and fix the bike. So. When you have a problem like that when you're on the road, do you find it stressful or do you just go about it as just another task of the day? Um, well, yeah, it's stressful. I think um, it's, it's sometimes quite hard to keep problems in perspective, um, particularly when you're on your own. If you're with other people, you can banter back and forth with those issues and you can come up with solutions. When you're on your own, these uh, problems can sort of have end of trip connotations. So it's, it is a bit difficult uh, sometimes and you do feel um, it, it is hard to keep proportion and perspective on what these problems are. Uh, I'm getting better at it because I know now that it's never the end of the world. There is always options. For example, last year I was in Albania and I was completely out there. There were no roads. It was horrendous. My map was wrong. And so I was trying to find a road in a place in the country where there simply wasn't one. And I kept dropping the bike. I kept ending up in bogs and dead ends and, and rivers that were uncrossable and boulder strewn uh, dry riverbeds and it was just it was impossible anyway on a on the last well i dropped the bike really badly um where it was almost impossible to get up and apart from it laying on its side and pissing out fuel i'd also snapped off the front brake um brake the brake lever now the back brake had not been working for some time and now there was absolutely just a stub of a front brake lever i could barely put my finger on and that was it. Albania had just beaten me. Um, and so I hopped back to the border of Montenegro to these customs offices. I'd seen three hours before as I'd entered the country. And I'm just drenched in sweat. I'm just like, your country's beaten me. I just can't do this. And so I had to go back into the country I just left. Um, again, with no front brake to this little town and there's sort of this mafiosa guy sort of saying, oh, it's OK, don't worry about it. We'll fix it for you. And I'm trying to think, how the hell am I going to fix this? It's uh, the KLR brake lever is not a, that standard of a brake lever. And I used to carry spare levers with me. But now I've got bark bashes on the bike. I thought, oh, I don't need to carry levers. But the bark bash had bent so much it snapped off the lever. Things like that can have make you think, oh, God, what am I going to do? Wait for DHL for a week? You know, how the hell am I going to get out of this situation? And the next morning, um, I went back to it fresh. And I clamped a pair of mole grips, vice grips, onto the lever. 
and the little ones, and they just snapped on, and they were perfect. I mean, they were ergonomically perfect. It's like putting your last coin into a slot machine and it coming up with a jackpot. I knew that this was going to work. My trip was not over. And I still keep those vice grips on there now because they look so cool and they work so well. So yeah, it's a good thing about keeping things in perspective, you know? <laughs> How do you feel about traveling alone versus traveling in groups? Um, for me, I prefer it. I mean, you meet people on the road and I've met people who I've traveled with for sometimes up to two weeks. Uh, then again, occasionally you might just meet someone who's good for an evening meal. Um, I don't really do commitment that well. So I, I wouldn't want to leave with a group of people who I knew I had to stay with because they'll, they're, they're, occasionally the chemistry is perfect, but more often than not, um, you're not necessarily compatible. And I know that I'm I, I I'm okay on my own, so I don't have to put up with situations which cause friction or frustration or aggression. Uh, the other great thing I think about being on your own is you're far more open to meeting local people. Even if you're with one other person at a table in a restaurant, there's absolutely no need for anybody else to approach you. You've got company and you're not really open to it. But if I sit on my own in a restaurant um, and I don't stare at my phone or a laptop and I'm open and receptive to other people, more often than not, someone will come, ask me to join them or just sort of make some conversation. And that's when you get invites to homestays. That's when you get told about little places that aren't in the guidebooks. And uh, and that's when you discover the real country, I think, when you talk to the local people. So I think it is harder going on your own, definitely. But ultimately, I think it's more rewarding. Can you give us a quick rundown on your bike and the mods? And, and I'm sort of gener talking generally here, whether it be your KLR or your Yamaha, what sort of mods do you like to do to your bike and, and how does that work out? Uh, okay, well, we were talking earlier about um, the accessories. I think some things that are essential are a good sump guard um, because you're going to hit rocks and uh, you don't want to puncture your engine cases. Um, so I would definitely get a good sump guard. Heated grips, I think, are crucial. And um, I recently discovered the Airhawk seat, which made a huge difference if you're doing high mileage days. So there's some, of the, and, and I also put a bit of sheepskin over that. So um, so you've got, you've got comfort on the bottom, on your own bottom and, and, and protection on the bottom of your bike. I think they're quite important. Um, as far as other mods, like I said, I cover up the headlights so it's not gonna um, smash from, from rocks. Um, I have a, a Scott Euler to oil my chain, um, although I always leave with new chain and sprockets um, because you're going to probably get 15,000 miles out of a chain and sprocket, but I try and keep it lubed anyway. Um, other than that, you know, you can sometimes just agonize over what spare parts you will need. I mean, cables, yes, because they don't take up much room and uh, and. They are prone to snapping, throttle cables, clutch cables, etc. Um, obviously, punch repair kit and stuff like that. But trying to figure out everything that could possibly go wrong, and, and you will never do that. And I had a breakdown in Mongolia, and uh, back brake got seized on, and I hadn't realised by the time I did, if it had been night, that back uh, rotor would have been, been absolutely glowing. And what happened was I melted the seals in my rear caliper. Well, it doesn't matter how much of a ingenuity a race have, they can't manufacture a, a rubber seal that goes around the piston. So I had no option but to order one from the UK and wait a week for it to arrive. Um, which, as a lot of people say, it's not a secret, that that is the adventure. When something happens 
which is unexpected. When you suddenly find yourself staying pot in a little town that you would never even have dreamt of putting your feet down in, um, you become a local, you go to the local veg shops every morning, you get your food, you get to see how the place functions on a day-to-day -day basis. And you come away at the end of that week with your new brake caliper and also a really good understanding of how that little village works. And uh, it's not necessarily the convenient, but it's, also, it, it's probably one of the most memorable parts of the journey when the journey's over. Tell us the names of your books. Yeah, um, the first one was called In Search of Greener Grass. And the second one is called Eureka, which is spelt with a U, which um, which was very uh, poignant because the trip had a U-turn. And that's when I found the line between desire and contentment, but was also rather short-sighted because instead of calling the book Eureka, I tend to call it Eureka spelt with a U. <laughs> Maybe that should have been the title, Eureka spelled with a U. <laughs> <laughs> Live and learn, don't you? <laughs> what do you have for favorite books, Graham? Uh, well, I've got two, actually. Um, my all-time favorite Overland Motorcycle book would be One Man Caravan by Robert Fulcrum Jr. And the reason is he did that trip in the 1930s. And he was an American who started on a bike in England to ride back to America through the Middle East. And it was such a different world back then. And he talks about the war because back then there was only one. When he talks about the 70s, he's talking about the 1870s, not the 1970s. And so he travels through a world which we will never see. And um, that for me is probably my all time favorite motorcycle book. Um, but as far as more modern one goes, there's a guy called Dan Walsh, who's an English. He was a journalist. And he wrote a book called uh, These Are the Days That Must Happen to You. And that was a trip that he did through the Americas. And I love his format of writing. He's he's also quite blatant and honest, but he's also very informed politically, has a huge social conscience. And uh, and he also has the advantage of being able to speak Spanish. So he does have a lot of interaction with the people he goes through. So, yeah, I would say those were my two favorite books. I've been speaking with Graham Field, and you can visit his website. Check our show notes for a link to his website. You can visit his website, grahamfield.co.uk. And Graham, where's the best place to find your books? Uh, in the UK, they're paperback and Kindle. In North America, you can buy the first one, In Search of Greener Grass, in paperback. But you can only get the new one, Eureka, on Kindle format um, So uh, because, because of logistics and everything else. Um, alternatively, if you go to my website, which is grahamfield.co.uk, from there you can order any of the books and you can get them signed and delivered anywhere in the world. So uh, it's, uh, anything's available anywhere. Thank you, Graham. Till next time. Really good questions, by the way. I'm really impressed. It wasn't just the normal, what's your scariest moment, what's your not favorite country. Really good, thoughtful questions. I uh, really appreciate that. <laughs> Oh, thanks, Ram. That's much appreciated. Nice one. Okay, cheers for that, Jim. <laughs> well, that wraps up another Adventure Rider Radio. Thanks very much for listening. We certainly appreciate it. Hey, you want to do Adventure Rider Radio a favor? Go on to iTunes and rate us on iTunes. Drop by our website. Like our site on Facebook. Give us some feedback on our website. There's spots there for your comments. Send in ideas for shows. Get involved. Don't forget to check out the show notes and visit Graham's website. Go buy his books. I'm telling you, you're not going to go wrong. These books are fantastic. Support the authors. Get them out there doing more. It's great to be able to read these stories and live vicariously through their adventures. 
I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Now get out there and ride your bike. Ride safe. Oh yeah, one other thing I almost forgot. If you drop by our site, you're going to see a donation button on there. It'd be great if you appreciate what we're doing here and you want to throw in some funds to help finance the operation, by all means, click on that button and send us a donation. Very much appreciated. This is Graham Field, Overland Travel Author from the UK, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. (laughs) 